This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the sports ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on a paper in the philosophy of sport literature. We look at classic discipline-defining articles, exciting newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. In this episode of Examine Sport, I discuss Nicholas Dixon's Boxing, Paternalism, and Legal Moralism, published in Social Theory and Practice in April 2001. Dixon is not the first to address moral questions about the sport of boxing. However, this paper is important because Dixon focuses on what he calls preemptive paternalism as the basis for restrictions on boxing. And this conception of paternalism has since been influential on a wide range of issues from doping to banning American football. Now, Dixon discusses several arguments that might justify restrictions on boxing, some of which he rejects, some of which he accepts. But since Dixon himself doesn't rely on most of these arguments for his own conclusion, and because later works draws primarily on his discussion of preemptive paternalism, this episode is really only going to focus on that paternalistic argument that Dixon provides. Now we start with the idea that boxing leads to brain damage. Right? There is long-standing, well-established evidence that boxing's repeated blows to the head lead to measurable and chronic brain injury. And for these reasons, the American Medical Association and other associations of health and medical professionals uh, across the world have long called for the banning of boxing. And while there are many reasons offered for banning of boxing, from its purported inherent cruelty and violence to its possible negative social uh, effects, the main and persistent reason offered is the concern about irreversible brain damage that impairs and undermines cognitive function. Other injuries and harms from boxing can be treated, repaired, or mitigated in various ways but brain damage directly implicates moral questions about autonomy. It raises concerns about consent and liberty, and at what point we can justifiably interfere to restrict liberty. Dixon focuses on professional boxing. Professional boxing involves longer bouts, doesn't require headgear, and so the risks of long-term brain injury are much greater. Amateur boxing also doesn't raise concerns uh, about socioeconomic pressure to engage in boxing. With the promise of big financial rewards, professional boxing puts more pressure on the most disadvantaged members of society to risk their lives for the promise of wealth. But since there's no such promise of great wealth from amateur boxing, it's more reasonable to assume that amateur boxers are doing it for the pure love of of the sport, uh, and so that sort of pressure is not, not there. Now, Dixon's conclusion, his goal in this paper, is to establish a single restriction on boxing. Quote, I will conclude that we should impose a single legal restriction that would effectively eliminate boxing's main medical risk, a complete ban on blows to the head, end quote. So Dixon's not arguing for a complete ban on boxing. Though he concedes that his restrictions might lead to the end of boxing in the end, he's not calling for that. He's arguing that boxing should be no longer uh, allowing punches to the head 
This would significantly reduce, even eliminate the concerns about irreversible brain damage and the impact that that injury would have on autonomy. Boxing would still be permitted, or a revised version of boxing would still be permitted, and so the general liberty of those wishing to participate in boxing and those wishing to spectate it would not be restricted. Now, to restrict boxing for the sake of protecting boxers themselves is a form of paternalism. It's a coercive interference with someone's choice for the sake of that person's own good. Now, such a restriction, quote, falls foul of Mill's famous defense of, of individual freedom in On Liberty, end quote. So paternalism fails to treat adults as autonomous individuals able to guide their lives by their own choices and the liberty of the individual to lead his or her life by his or her own values and choices is the central value for free liberal societies. And so paternalism looks then to be profoundly anti-liberal. However, Dixon argues that there are more sophisticated paternalistic arguments that are, according to his argument, not only consistent with liberal society, but might even be necessary for it. So Dixon starts by appealing to Mill's own exceptions to his otherwise deep anti-paternalism. So Mill accepts that paternalistic restrictions can be applied in the case of children and others who lack the capability for autonomy. This so-called soft paternalism allows paternalism only to protect people from actions or decisions that are not autonomous. So those who might lack autonomy, like small children, or those who might be in a position where they might lack autonomy, someone under duress, for example, can have their choices interfered with according to this soft paternalism. It's argued that such interference is justified in order to protect autonomy. So this raises the question, do boxers lack the requisite autonomy when engaging in boxing? There are, there are two ways that they might lack it. The first is they might not have the adequate uh, information on which to make an informed decision, or there might be a coercive pressure to go into boxing. Right, so either one of those might be the ways in which uh, they might lack, uh, boxers might lack autonomy. Now, <clears throat> on the first point, that boxers might not have the adequate and appropriate information, right, we can see that if potential boxers are not aware of the dangers inherent in boxing, then they can't be autonomously consenting to the risks. Right? Now, the problem, though, is that even if this is true, the solution here is education and information, not a paternalistic restriction on boxing. Right? And so the education, rather than a paternalistic restriction, would enable boxers to, uh, to quote, uh, make autonomous decisions and would show maximal respect for their autonomy. Right? So rather then uh, if, if it's a mere matter of lack of information, the best solution is, is education because this respects autonomy, uh, and, uh, but then also make sure that people are actually consenting to what they believe they are consenting. Now, the second way in which boxers might lack autonomy here is if their decision to enter boxing is the result of coercive pressure. Obviously, someone who is forced to box, say to prevent a criminal gang from harming one's family, is not engaging in a freely chosen autonomous act. 
This would be deeply worrisome, but it's really not all that common. The more common sort of pressure that concerns moral philosophers is if boxing is seen as the only way out of desperate poverty. That is, it might be coercive if, quote, their decision to become boxers may reflect their desperation rather than an authentic desire that flows from their considered values. Now, since most boxers come from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, the concern over these potential coercive offers is quite real. And Dixon is clearly sympathetic to this argument. Quote, given the socioeconomic realities in which most fighters enter the profession, and given the brutality that most fighters regard as a necessary unpleasantness to be endured, we are entitled to restrict boxing in order to protect them. So Dixon concludes that some restriction is justified by soft paternalism. The coercive pressures to engage in boxing are themselves autonomy-reducing, and when combined with boxing's inherent risk of autonomy-reducing brain damage, soft paternalism seems to allow restrictions and interferences in boxing for the sake of respecting autonomy. However, this soft paternalistic argument could fail at various points. In particular, it could turn out that most boxers are aware of the risks and are not unduly pressured into boxing. Soft paternalism would then fail on these grounds because the boxers would satisfy the conditions for autonomy, and soft paternalism only permits paternalism where autonomy is lacking. And so Dixon then turns back to what we can call a hard paternalism, where restrictions on fully autonomous individuals might still be justified. And here Dixon again returns to Mill to look at Mill's own uh, exceptions to anti-paternalism anti that Mill himself discusses. And this is the so-called slavery contract. So Mill argues in chapter 5 of On Liberty that an agreement by which a person sells himself or allows himself to be sold as a slave could not be valid or an enforceable agreement. Mill says, quote, the principle of freedom cannot require that he should be free not to be free, end quote. Now, the slavery contract is wrong, it's argued, because it undercuts the very reasons we have for protecting autonomy. So if autonomy is important, and the object of protection, then the complete abdication of that uh, uh, autonomy must be rejected. And this abdication eliminates one's total autonomy in the future, and thus for the sake of autonomy, the abdication has to be prevented. Now, the implications of the slavery contract uh, have long been in dispute. What does it really mean? What is Mill really trying to argue for here? But Dixon uh, takes this as providing a general principle that since autonomy is important, we are justified in minor restrictions on people's current autonomy in order to prevent future loss of autonomy that would result from that current exercise of autonomy. So while the slavery case is clearly an extreme case, it provides Dixon a clear example of what he calls preemptive paternalism, quote, restrictions on autonomous actions in order to preserve greater future autonomy. So we, we preempt your current actions in order to protect your future autonomy. Can we apply this preemptive paternalism to boxing? Well, we know two things. Most boxers will, quote, most boxers will suffer from irreversible brain damage, end quote, and quote, brain damage is the most direct way to reduce a person's autonomy, end quote. So while not directly parallel to selling oneself into slavery, the idea is that engaging in boxing likely means suffering severe brain injuries and irreversible brain damage. 
This damage means that one's cognitive capabilities, one's capacity for engaging in intellectual, moral, prudential decision-making will be reduced potentially in significant and severe ways. And if this is true, then it looks like preemptive paternalism could be employed to restrict boxing for the sake of the boxer's future autonomy. Now, Dixon takes up a major criticism of this sort of paternalism uh, that comes from the late philosopher Joel Feinberg. So Feinberg criticized preemptive paternalism. He doesn't call it that, but he, he criticized uh, this idea of, pre of something like preemptive paternalism on the grounds that the choice to limit or restrict future autonomy is an autonomous choice and the life lived would still be an autonomously chosen life. So failure to respect that would be failing to respect that autonomous individual. He further argues that to allow a concern about protecting future autonomy to restrict present autonomy would absurdly lead to a significant and widespread restrictions on autonomy across the board on all kinds of things, including, quote, a Spartan regime of enforced health and hygiene. All of these things that might implicate future autonomy would be subject to restriction. Now, Dixon replies that we can distinguish between, quote, dramatic differences in degree between different losses of future autonomy, end quote. Irreversible damage, brain damage that impairs intellectual and moral autonomy can be distinguished from short-term losses or long-term health effects of bad life habits that don't really impair one's capacity for making choices. Preemptive paternalism would only apply to cases where serious risks to future autonomous capabilities are implicated. Now, further, Dixon argues that in the slavery contract case, we see an example where the, quote, the request to become a slave is so self-destructive as to create a presumption of irrationality in the requester, end quote. So shifting back then to soft paternalism, Dixon argues that the slave requester is incompetent and soft paternalism kicks in to protect them from, quote, inautonomous decisions, end quote. Dixon then seems to argue that boxing is in some way worse than the slavery contract because the slave still has his intellectual and moral capabilities, while the boxer, who has suffered severe brain damage, would not. This suggests that the paternalistic interference to protect autonomy is even more justified for boxing than in terms of slavery. Now, Dixon's uh, article covers several other arguments uh, in favor of restricting boxing. However, his main conclusion that we ought to ban blows to the head is justified on the basis uh, first of the soft paternalism argument and then further by his preemptive paternalism argument. Such a, a restriction, Dixon says, would reduce and even eliminate the primary moral risk of boxing. And by eliminating blows to the head, there is no longer a serious threat to one's intellectual and moral autonomy. And it achieves this with a minimal restriction on liberty-consenting adults, right? The, this revised boxing would still be permitted for participants and spectators. Now, Dixon acknowledges that such a restriction could lead to the demise of professional boxing, right? If people are just not interested in watching this revived sport where there are no blows to the head, right, bo professional boxing would, would, uh, would go away. However, he argues this would be the result of individual choices and preferences and not directly from the coercive interference with liberty, uh, such that would come if we just outright banned boxing. So whatever one might think of the arguments presented by Dixon in this paper, and to be honest, I remain unpersuaded, the idea of preemptive paternalism that he discusses here plays an important role in later works in the literature, and that makes it worth examining.
Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show at Apple Podcasts, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com.